Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. On March 27th of this year, a parent's worst nightmare. A shooter, a 28-year-old female to male transgender named Audrey um, Hale, entered the Covenant Christian School in Nashville, Tennessee, blasting away, terrorizing the unsuspected students and teachers. Three adults and three children were killed. Almost immediately after hearing about the shooting, counselors from Daystar Counseling Ministries responded. They grabbed their therapy pads and raced to the reunification point to help families deal with the trauma. Most parents and children will never face such an evil in their schools. But one thing is for certain, we are all worried it could happen. And worry is key here because anxiety has become the new pandemic of this cultural age. I mean, stats show anxiety has risen dramatically in the last five years Um, for children ages 3 to 17, a 27 percent increase from 2016 to 2019. Now, not all of their anxiety is due to fear of mass shootings. There's there's divorce, being bullied, the feeling that they're lost or isolated all contribute to the anxiety. I mean, I'm sure parents out there can actually add to that list. Um, Sissy Goff is the director of Child and Adolescent Counseling at Daystar, and she's here to talk about the aftermath of the school shooting and how counselors helped. But she's also here to talk about anxiety in general and helping parents deal with it in their children and in themselves. Sissy's book, book, The Worry-Free Parent, lays out what parents can do. Uh, to live in confidence so their kids can do can too. Well, welcome, first of all, Sissy. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be with you. Well, it's an honor for you to be here too. I mean, for me to have you here rather, um, because we've been because of COVID, we've been doing so much, you know, remote kind of yes. podcast. So it's nice to have somebody actually in the in studio. Person. And it's really cool. There's a different dynamic when you're actually sitting across um, the the desk from somebody. Um, you know, is it really possible, though, to have a worry-free parent, to be a worry-free parent? I mean, that's kind of like, I mean, only, you know, on the other side of eternity. That's I think. what I was <laughs> going to say. This side of heaven, I don't think it's completely possible, but I think it's what we're working towards yeah. and what we want to have in our minds and pray for. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things that really hits you about what happened at Covenant is here you've got parents who obviously have their children in school because they have a deep faith. They want their children to be brought up in that faith. They have a really beautiful school in a bucolic, relatively crime-free neighborhood. Yes. And um, and you would never expect a shooting. And mm-hmm. then the worst happened. Um, what happened that day? Mm. Just hearing you talk about it takes me back. I So I have been a counselor to kids and families for 30 years, and our office is a mile maybe from the Covenant School, and mm-hmm. my house is half a mile probably. Wow. And have spoken, I do a lot of parenting seminars with some of my coworkers and have spoken there multiple times. Catherine Kuntz, who was the head of school that was killed, was a dear friend, and Anyway, so I was getting ready to go to work and got a text from a coworker friend who said there's been a shooting at Covenant. And I, I didn't, you know, it's just mm-hmm. when tragedy hits home, I just thought someone's confused. Yeah. But I drove to work and found out that several staff members were already planning to go to the reunification center and take one of our therapy dogs and take water and just do whatever. And and I actually I have a sister who's 16 years younger than I am. So she has a little guy in preschool. And my first thought was. Kathleen and how are 
how are people in our community? I mean, my first thought was Nashville going to talk to their kids about this. Mm -hmm, What do mm -hmm. they say? How do you explain? And so I hopped on Instagram and tried to do a quick little video about this is how you talk to your kids about this. Of course, started crying on Instagram because I just could not believe that this was true. And then went to the reunification center and spent the day. and, And because I just have been connected to those families for so long, I ended up speaking to the parents in the center about here's how you can talk to your kids about this when you go reconnect with them and go to a park and take all the time in the world and hold them close you know just some super practical things because they were in such shock and grief and then David Thomas who's a dear friend that I get to write and work with he and I went I think the next night and spoke to all the covenant families again and then we went I can't even, the days I'll run into each other. We went to speak to the school, to the teachers about how to help kids work through anxiety in the aftermath. So I got to be really heavily involved. And and there were so many counselors who showed up in beautiful ways. And we had a lot of kids. At Daystar, we just decided that for as long as the Covenant families needed counseling, we were going to offer free counseling to them. And so, because we're a nonprofit, we can do that. And so, anyway, we were just mobilizing, as was every counselor in our community, to help and do what we could for this precious school and these wonderful families. What was the first thing that um, parents asked you or wanted to know, or what was their first response when they arrived? What do we say? I mean, it was... I think they just were still all of them in such shock. And we were just finding out the kids that were missing and the kids whose lives have been lost. And so there, and I mean, even Catherine Kuntz was amazing. I mean, she was so kind and such a fighter, so strong. And no one was saying that she was gone there. And I just literally, when I heard the news that it had happened, I texted her and said, day starts here. What can we do? And of course, near back. So um, anyway, I kept thinking Catherine would be in the middle of this. Something's off. Some, mm-hmm. But I couldn't mm-hmm. even let myself go there because I just Ugh. wanted to be with the families. But yes, they just were all, you know, as you would be as a parent. What do I do for my child? How do I? I mean, I remember I think I had eight parents say, how do I tell them that their best friend is gone? You know, just the conversation you would never want to have with your own child in elementary, any age, but elementary school kids. And you were dealing with it, not just as a counselor with training, but you had to deal with your own grief as well at the same time. I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, uh, you put it aside for the time being, certainly. But I, I mean, for me, at least one of the best ways for me to process any emotion is to have purpose. Mm-hmm. And so I think just the fact that I was getting to help was the thing that helped me get through it the most. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens during these or after these these tragedies and these terrible things is that people, especially if, if you're in a secular kind of public school environment, um, if you have any belief in God, the question is, why would God allow mm-hmm. this to happen yes. in to innocent people? Yes. And it's got to be particularly interesting that it's a Christian school yes. that should really kind of understand. But then there's there had to be those questions, even in the Christian school. Yes, there certainly were. And one of the children who was killed, Hallie, her dad is the pastor of the church. Right. And he I mean, I think anybody who could go back and listen to the sermon he did afterwards i mean it was remarkable the sermons and in even her funeral service and to step into those play i can't even imagine what that was like for the scruggs family I mean, they're amazing people but but I, for me i think 
I kept wrestling with the same thing. What do you say? How do you even step into this spiritually? Because we don't have answers. There is no explanation. And I honestly, the next morning, got a phone call and went down some news outlets asked me to come do an interview. And I didn't realize, you know, I'm not. I'm not, I haven't done this a lot. And so I didn't realize that they were across the street from the Covenant School mm-hmm. when they asked me to come down. And it was really early in the morning. And I, I just was processing my own grief. And and so I pulled up and I got out of my car thinking, don't cry, Sissy, don't cry. This is not the time to cry. And I walked over and I was so nervous and and waiting to go on air. And they it, it was taking longer than I thought. And so I turned around. I'm going somewhere, I promise. I turned around <laughs> and looked at the Covenant School. And next to the sign for the Covenant School was the sign for their Easter services, where I knew Chad, Chad Scruggs would be speaking. And I, in that moment, I thought, this is it. There is no answer but the fact that on the darkest day, I remember in our community, Easter is here. That's yeah. what we get to talk about. And that's what defines us. Not this tragedy, not for the families that are walking through it, which it feels defining. But but we have hope beyond that. And we don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't have any answers. But there's Easter. Because you as um, a faith based um, counseling operation. Yes. Can actually talk about evil. Yes. You can say there is evil in this world. Yes. And we're dealing with it now. I mean, I think that's part that is reassuring and I hate to say this word but reassuring for Christians is that in a, in a Christian environment in a Christian counseling center you can actually say evil evil does that there's work. sin there's evil and that there's the devil and that we can actually this is what he does mm. yes I mean that's got to be some kind of advantage in, yes. a, in a sense of dealing with a trauma like this mm. yes yes it definitely is when, what do kids need most in that time? Because one of the things that strikes me about these kinds of traumas, when it happens to a child, because I grew up in an environment where these kinds of things just didn't happen. Mm. I mean, it's I grew up in the inner city, I mean, I'm, but I'm at an age where school shootings just weren't there. Right. Um, you know, two-parent household, not, you know, you know, basically middle class. But this is not what happens. But... When a child whose synaptic connections are still being made, right. right, how do they make sense of it in their growing pattern? Like that becomes a new normal for them in a mm. sense. It is. I mean, sadly, it is a new normal in our labs. One of our counselors at Daystar told me about his first session that afternoon with a little boy and and the little guy said, this is just a part of our world now, which is just tragic that it feels commonplace enough for them that he would say that. And I think, I mean, to your question about what can parents do, the the children, and I have a, a dear friend named Nero Feliciano, and she was involved with Sandy Hook shooting. And, and she said this to me. I mean, we connected right after it happened. And she said, the two populations that will struggle the most are the kids who are anxious already and the parents. And that has certainly been my experience that, that the parents have had to work through so much to manage their own anxiety because, because kids grieve differently. I mean, they, we talk about it sometimes like coming up for air. I mean, they go down into the grief and then they come up and Mm -hmm. they've got to emerge just who they are developmentally. Whereas we can sit in it longer. And so 
the thing I have continually said to parents is you've got to do your own work because they are taking cues from you. And if if you can't engage with them, if you're so in the midst of your own grief and anxiety, they're not going to be able to work through theirs. And they're going to feel like they have to rise up and take care of you, which is not helpful. There's, but there's a sense of anxiety that is in the world. In the introduction, we talked about how anxiety is rising among young young people today, children and young adults. Um, the rates of anxiety are increasing. Depression yes. is increasing. Yes. Suicides are increasing. Um, why, in general, is it increasing? All of these things that um, we've got, the most the most wealth the most toys um the m- most clothes the most entertainment and yet the anxiety and depression are rising why is it there's so many factors we could talk about i mean obviously technology and social media is a huge piece of it for kids who are old enough to be using those i have never seen as many kids feel as much pressure in terms of being perfectionists i mean i don't sit with kids anymore girls particularly who say I, need, I want to get a 98. They all want to get 104. They want to get a personal record every race that they run. I mean, the the drive for perfectionism is staggering to me among kids really young. And then, I mean, another thing, honestly, I would say is parenting strategies. Mm. And the helicopter parenting is not working. Huh? The helicopter parenting is not working. And I wrote a book called Raising Worry-Free Girls. And in it, I kind of gave this layman's term of anxiety definition that is anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of ourselves. And the two most common parenting strategies in light of anxiety are escape and avoidance. Mm. So I'm watching my child struggle and it feels like good parenting to step in and pull them out. Whereas when we do that, we're affirming the definition. You know what? You're right. It's too big and you're too small. You can't do it, Mm. which is never, ever the message a parent would want to give their kids. And I think they're not even aware it's happening, but it's what the kids are receiving. I can't do it. I need my parents to step in. Well, you know, the idea, though, though, that the that the that that losing is such a trauma for, mm, for kids. Yes, this is going to be a problem. I mean, and the, and the other side of that, of course, is handing out medals for anybody participating in a race. Right. I mean, there's, there's like two extremes here. It's, yes. You know, I mean, that's got to be like confusing for a child. Mm. Oh, I graduated from kindergarten. Excuse me. <laughs> And you get a what? Right. You get a diploma? I don't understand that. Right. Um, so there's, are, there, are they getting these mixed messages or why are they getting these mixed messages? So I had a really interesting experience at Daystar. I mean, you have seen us on the Internet. The place where I get to counsel kids every day, it's a yellow house with a white picket fence and our dogs work with us. Yeah, I want to live there, us. actually. It's, it's, it's pretty beautiful. magical. It's, yeah. it's a wonderful place. When, so you, when, when you open an adult division, I'm coming I'll call down. you. Okay, okay, that's great. But I know if a child comes to Daystar, just our environment is going to do a lot of the work in helping them feel at ease. And I had a little girl who came to see me for the first time for anxiety. She was eight, the average age of onset. It used to be eight. Now it's dropped to seven. Wow. And and you can tell sitting with me in the room, your listeners can't tell, but I have a really enormous smile. And <laughs> I saw too. this little girl across the room and I smiled and waved at her and she smiled and waved at me. And I said, hey, I'm Sissy. I'm so excited that you're at Daystar. I'm going to take you on a tour of the Daystar house. And then we're going to go up to meet my, to my office to meet my little dog named Lucy. And you're going to love her. And this precious little girl popped up to follow me. And her mom grabbed her arm and stopped her and said, do you feel comfortable with that? Oh, my gosh. Right. She had brought her to me for counseling. Oh, my gosh. And it had never occurred to this little girl not to feel comfortable until her mom said the words. And then here's where 
this came from. This sweet girl went with me. Her mom followed us on the whole tour, sat across from my door the whole time I was meeting with her daughter. And so I sent her little girl out and I brought her in and I said, as any therapist would, tell me about your family history, knowing Mm. where she was going. And she said, well, I had anxiety when my parents, when I was growing up and my parents never understood me. Mm. And so what we're seeing now is parents who are really over identifying with their kids' emotions because they feel like their parents never heard them, never understood them. And so in all of the books on anxiety, which I've written several at this point, I always start with understanding because we do want to know what anxiety looks like because it's different than we expect. We move toward practical help and then some foundational hope. But kids are stopping at that sense of understanding. You know, all the all the press right now about feeling your feelings is beautiful, but it's different than doing our work. Doing our work involves feeling our feelings, but we don't stop there. We move toward coping strategies because we want kids to develop resilience and we've got to work through it. You know, it's kind of like um, like when I grew up, you did not talk to kids at all. Like my mother didn't talk to me at (laughs) all. We were not passing feeling starts around our dinner tables. No, (laughs) it wasn't. In fact, I remember I've talked about this in my book and I think I've talked about it um, um, here in the podcast before. But I remember when I was six years old. And our teacher made us stay after school. I had all sorts of anxieties over this, thinking I would never see my mother anymore. I thought staying Aww. after school was you're 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 now in jail for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, it's yes. a life sentence. And so I and I was like traumatized. And I got home, and I my mother because I'm five minutes late. She's now anxious because mm. her youngest child is now late, and she's thinking I'm got you got hit by a car. And the minute she I come in, she yells at me. Where have you like where have you been? And all of a sudden it's like, why doesn't my mother understand that mm. I'm so hurt? And it was like the most traumatic thing in my life mm. at six years old. Yes, of that course. That stayed with me for a very, very long time. Of course. So is there a problem on the other end that parents can be not communicative enough? Yes. I, and I love that you told that story because in all these years of doing this work, I've never heard as many parents talk about getting angry and blowing it with their kids. Mm. That, and I love that they feel afraid to admit it in counseling. But I think exactly what you said is what happens. Anger is considered a secondary emotion, which means there's always something else at its root. And so, and, and I, I mean, I love talking about this with parents because I believe angry parents feel more shame than anything else in their parenting. And I think often at the root of anger is anxiety. And so mm. for your mom, of course, she felt anxious. She didn't know where you were. And she's going to erupt in anger because she doesn't know how to say, oh, honey, I was so worried about you. That's not the first thing that comes to her. And and I think we get angry often because we feel out of control. You know, this is an issue. I'm going to come back. Uh, I'm going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Sissy Goff from the Daystar uh, Counseling uh, Ministries. We'll be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. 
Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lighthouse today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash lighthouse. Betterhelp.com slash lighthouse. Okay, we're back with Sissy Goff, who um, is with the uh, Daystar um, Counseling Ministries in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. And we talked about what happened on the day of the, sh- of the school shooting at Covenant. And then we're talking about anxiety in general, though, now, because I think on your website is so very interesting, the videos talking about what children kind of worry about. There's things like divorce. Um, there's bullying. Right. Um, you know, there's kids thinking that I'm just so isolated and I'm not enough. Um, so there's all this anxiety happening. And, you know, one of the things that... Um, kind of s- sticks out in terms of anxiety is that there is a slow release of it. There's a, there, there's, it's like an, a slow arc. Mm. Like you don't, you can't even define what's wrong. Yes. yes. And it's just there like, like the third rail on the subway, mm. you know, it's just there. Mm. How do you deal with that kind of anxiety where you can't really say I'm, I'm anxious because such and such, it's just there for whatever reason you don't even know well and as you're saying that my immediate thought is it feels like that for us as adults and our brains are finished developing can you imagine what it feels like as a child when you really don't understand what's going on and and I think their default so often is something's wrong with me yeah and so I mean I it's why I wrote the worry-free parent because I feel like I sit with so many parents who are really intentional and will say, my child's really anxious and I'm wondering if it's coming from me and I don't know what to do about it. Because one of the things I read in the research is that anxiety is a response to cumulative stress over time, mm. which hello, yes. life in 2023, you know, <laughs> we can't be exempt from it. And and I do think it feels like this vague sense of something's wrong, something's wrong with me and I don't know what it is. And so to dig in and look at it is one of the most important things we can do and one of the best gifts we can give to kids. Yeah, are we over COVID yet? I mean, I mean, I, I don't want to keep blaming COVID for everything because anxiety existed before COVID. Right. So are we over the COVID hump now or not? I think we are as adults. As kids, one of the things that I'm seeing is, well, a few things I'm seeing, I don't believe they're over it yet, but I don't think they have a clue that it's from COVID. I mean, I'm seeing more social anxiety with kids than I've ever seen before. And I'm seeing kids who are behind developmentally, emotionally and socially because, well, and the third thing I would say, fourth thing, I don't know how many said, (laughs) is entitlement. Mm. And I think so many of those things, we were out of practice our families were just hunkered down together. I mean, I will never forget the first. <laughs> we have a little summer retreat program for kids in counseling, and we go play on the lake. And And a girl who got on an inner tube, precious little girl, who, you know, we have 50 kids out there at a time. And so there's a lot of taking turns on all the different things. And she went on an inner tube ride and got off and said, I'd like to go back now. And it didn't even occur to her. There were eight other kids on the boat who got to have turns, mm. but we didn't take turns. You know, we were just accommodating our little families and not having to be aware of other people. And so all of those things, I think, contributed to what we're seeing with kids and even the 
lag socially and emotionally in their development because they didn't have to practice. They didn't. I mean, things like having your feelings hurt by another kid on the playground. Those things move us ahead developmentally. And they miss so many of those things. Can they catch up, though? I mean, is there a time uh, yes. when they can catch up? Because kids can kind of. Kids are so resilient. Resilient. Yes. Yeah. But I think we have to be intentional with it. I think we have to let them be exposed to some of the things they weren't exposed to. You talk about worry, and I think what's really helpful in the book, you talk about, you dissect worry. You talk about worry in three kind of separate things. You talk about the worry in the past, worry in the present, and worry in the future. And all of them can create bad stuff mm each one of those three areas. Yes. But there's other thing you talk about worry is that worry is a lie. Mm. Yes. Explain that. Worry is a lie. It sounds like the devil, actually. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yes. 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 So, I mean, even from a what's going on in our brain standpoint, from a scientific standpoint in terms of our brain chemistry. So what happens is anytime we become anxious, the blood flow shifts. It leaves the prefrontal cortex that helps us think rationally, manage our emotions, and it goes to the amygdala. That's the fight or flight region of our brain. And the fascinating thing is the more often our amygdala is triggered, the more likely it is to trigger. It enlarges and develops a hair trigger response. Hmm. And so as it does that, our perception gets off and things become bigger. And so worry makes us think things are worse. They're bigger. We failed more than anything we could even imagine ever failing in before. You know, it just, it gets, it snowballs. And so mm-hmm. worry does in fact lie to us, which is why I think some of those coping strategies, we want to really target our thoughts and we want to get to truth that underlies the thoughts that we have that can pull us out of the lies worry tells us. And the worry for the future, I think, probably mm. is the one that immobilizes us. Yes, yes. That's a beautiful way to put it. It absolutely does. And when you think about parents, of course, it feels that way for your kids. It's immobilizing because you worry about them more than anything else in your life. How do you how do you talk to your kids about safety at school? And should parents be talking to their teachers about how they're dealing with it or because because this whole thing came about because of what happened at covenant and covenant's not going to be the last place that this is going to happen unfortunately Mm -hmm. and it's like it's like it's i mean it is like you know russian roulette in a sense Mm -hmm. of who's next it wasn't Yes. You know, mm-hmm. so what do you do? You talk to your kids about it, or do you not? Or do, depending on their age, what do you say? I think you certainly do because they're having drills at school, and we, as parents, you want to be the source of all things regarding your kids. You want to be the source about mental health. You want to be the source about talking to them about sex. You want to be the source on tragedy and things that can go wrong in their world. And they need you to be a steady calm source, non-anxious source. And so I think if you find out that your school is having an active shooter drill, talk to your kids about it beforehand. Let me tell you what's going to happen at your school tomorrow. Mm. Here's why you're going to be okay. The reason you do these things is your school is prioritizing keeping you safe as am I. And so we're going to talk through this. You can even practice with me anytime we can role play with kids. I think the better and to talk to them about what their school does to keep them safe, I think can anchor them to some comfort and even some control, which is going to help them feel better. You know, I want to move on to something that I think is seems banal, seems almost innocuous in this day and age because, you know, more than there's a divorce rate of like, like 50 percent or more or whatever. How traumatic is divorce for children and 
are children really okay the way parents think they're going to be okay? Because it's better for them not to be around us arguing all the time than, you know, to live with us, you know, um, in trying to work things out. What, mm. how, how much of a problem is divorce for children? It is still really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is certainly more commonplace. And most kids anymore have friends whose parents are divorced. But there is something about divorce that I think shakes the fabric of the foundation of who kids are. And it's the two people they love the most. And depending on their age, kids developmentally, they're the mm-hmm. center of their own universe. And so I think they often feel like I did something wrong or can my mom or dad decide they want to divorce me? You know, there are so many things that come up for kids that would never occur to us. So I definitely believe it's still impactful in a really painful way for kids. And I believe kids are resilient. And and counseling kids for 30 years, I've seen kids walk through just staggering trauma. And I am amazed And at the same time, I'm not amazed because we know suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character, hope. And and kids, kids are so much stronger than we have any idea. And they work through divorce in really amazing ways that create more resilience in them as a result. So it's both sides. I was worried, but I I have um, I know of a a family and um, the mother and father both married other people. And they have two sons that primarily live with a mother. But she married um, someone, and they had a young son. The father married somebody else, and now they're, they've got a young son or a young child and one on the way. Hmm. And these two older boys who are in their teens right now, early teens, they're now kind of going back and forth between these two parents. Nowhere are they where both of their parents are in the same place and raising them. What does that do to a child? Well, I think it creates a lot of confusion. And and I see parents do that really well Mm -hmm. where they co-parent and get on the same team. Mm -hmm. But I'm afraid the story is much more often there are two different rules in terms of technology and what you can use in our Mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. There, you know, curfews are different, all the things and parents or sometimes even step parents talk bad about the other parent and I think that is profoundly damaging and in fact that's I think one of the most damaging pieces of divorce for kids is when parents talk bad about the other but I think when parents can get on the same side I think families can be more cohesive and when even when they don't live in the same home yeah and I just I just worried that the because you know I don't know what it's like not to grow up with both parents who brought you in the world, I, I I take it for granted, you know that you know they, my parents were married for almost fifty two yes. years, uh, first marriages for both. Um, you know I've only had one husband, <laughs> you know, and yes. so I, I just take certain things for granted. But then everything affects a child. Yes, everything in their upbringing affects the child. I mean, I cannot. I mean, and you are a counselor, so you understand that you cannot stress enough. That every experience creates synaptic connections. Mm, yes. Whether you like it or not. Right. Or it's a good or bad, it, you know, it just creates things and how that environment then reacts mm. to them. Yes. You know? Yes. Get inside those little brains. I know. And the best thing we can do for kids always, any trauma a child goes through, 
the aftermath of that trauma and how we respond as the grownups who love them is really the most important healing part of the healing process. And so for us, I keep saying this, but for us to be non-anxious presence, for us to be supportive, to give them space, to talk about their emotions, to feel and to help them move move through coping strategies is the best thing we can do. What about the bullying, too? Because I, I'm bringing this up because the video also showed a young um, girl who'd been bullied. Mm. For being Asian, for, mm-hmm. you know, for yes. kids will figure out any way right. to be bullied, right. to bully somebody else. But just general bullying, how do you deal with helping them through that? Well, letting them know you're on their team, mm-hmm. that you want to hear, that you're there for them, helping them go to the school and advocate for themselves even first. I mean, I always recommend for kids to try and work it through first because we want to teach them conflict resolution skills. And then if nothing's happening, that we step in as their advocate and we go in and have a conversation with the school to help because, again, they need to know that we're on their team and that we hear them and what they're saying, we're going to believe them and and be on their side. Yeah. I mean, it used to be, and I this is obviously from the 50s and 60s and 70s that he used to have an older sibling who'd just come and just be a presence and just talk some sense and the yes. parents never got involved right and all of a sudden the kid's not alone anymore right. and the bullying stops you know that, that mm. big kid there's so many kids who are only children and that just doesn't happen anymore. right i know i know yes so i think as much as parents can do and i talk with parents a lot about teaching kids to be kind and strong at the same time because I think we also went through a phase where we just said just ignore it and it'll go away and the research says it won't and so when we teach can teach kids even in normal conflict because I think there is genuine bullying and now we have a lot of kids we had an eight-year-old who came to Daystar and said she was in toxic relationships what obviously she she heard her parents use that language and so in some ways we're over diagnosing and pathologizing things and so to teach kids that they can say things like i want to play with you but not when you treat me like that Mm. that's being kind and strong at the same time and i think bullying would be different i think our adult relationships conflict resolution skills would be different if we had learned that at eight or at 18 or 28, <laughs> you know. You know, I've got to bring this up because one of the things about the school shooting in, in at Covenant was that the shooter her, herself or himself, I'm not sure how, was transgender. Was that part of the conversation when you were counseling? Because that came out very slowly that mm-hmm. this was a transgender um, female to male, 28 years old. Um, obviously dealing with some stuff. Mm. So how much was that a part of the counseling when talking to parents and children? Not really. Really? It was fascinating. I mean, that's just not what the kids were focused on at all. Mm. I, I did not hear. I mean, I think I met personally, our team was all meeting with people. I think I probably met with 15 families in the three weeks following and did not hear one family talk about it. I mean, they were just kids were in the midst of their own grief and they were concerned about their own friends. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Dick Koontz, Catherine's husband, is remarkable. And he spoke at her funeral and he said there are not just six families impacted by this. There are seven. Mm. And he said, I want you to pray for all seven families who are walking through this tragedy and it is tragedy for every family. And I just, I will never forget his grace and his forgiveness and his heart in that because I think, you know, it it could have been, Nashville is a beautiful town with so many supportive people and I think it could have been 
polarizing and politicizing for so many people. And it just wasn't in Nashville. And I think even the kids not talking about it as much was likely because their parents weren't. I mean, you may not know this, but I know that the parents themselves have have not wanted the Shooter's Manifesto to be released to the public. Is that part of it? Maybe. You mean the parents of the parents the kids of the kids and Covenant. The, the, yes. Yes. I, I mean, I do think that's part of it is they're they're not wanting it to be about that. They're wanting it to be their focus is on how do I support my kids and walk mm-hmm. them through tragedy. And that would just like drag everything out and look at she hated Christians or they hated, you know, conservative Christians. And I, I have I couldn't even guess where she was coming from. But yes, I think they're just they're focused on how do we heal as a community. I mean, the covenant came to Daystar last week. I'm so sad that I was out of town, but they did a whole Instagram movement of a thousand thank yous. And they mm-hmm. went to, I'm not talking about it, but they went to every um, school, every part of our community that helped them. And they got this spray chalk paint and it was a heart with hands and it said a thousand thank yous. I mean, th- the fact that that school would go into our town to say thank you to people even, and that the fact that the administration of the school is teaching those kids that is just it's beautiful and it's healing. I mean, I just, I'm blown away by them. Yeah. I mean, it's, you've been through a lot, obviously. Um, the, the, the book, though, The Worry-Free Parent, I think is a really great book for parents. Thank and this has nothing to do with the shooting. It's really about just your normal kind of everyday life, trying to deal with the worry because anxiety and depression, all of these things are on the rise for young people. Would you recommend that parents take away their kids' phones and, and keep mm-hmm. them off social media because... The more I know what's on social media that kids are exposed to and that yes. they can get at, even if there are parental, parental controls, there's really, they can find a way. Right, right. I wish I could say yes. I wish I could say, let's just strip it all away and not <laughs> use any of it. And I taught, I used to teach an hour long class on parenting kids in a technology age. I hated it because every parent looked panicked the whole time. And one time when I was teaching it, there was a dad who stood up in the back of the room and he said, He started, it was a Sunday school class and he was yelling and he said, let me tell you all, technology is not a child's God given right. And he said, when I was driving my son to high school graduation was the first time he was screaming. I sound calm, but he said, was the first time I let my son get on the internet on his phone or send a photo from his phone. And he said, screamed, if your child is on the internet, go home and shut it down. I didn't even know what to do. I just said, let me pray for us. And I sent him out. But I thought. That kid, that poor kid, had zero freedom at 18. Mm-hmm. Three months later, he's living on his own somewhere, and he has access to everything. Can you imagine what he got into? Wow. And so I really believe our job as grown-ups is to teach kids to be responsible technology users while they live under our roof. We let the rope out gradually. We start really small with training wheels, and we let it out as they prove themselves responsible. When they blow it, as they will, we pull the rope right back in. But we live in that balance so that they don't hit that place where they think, I'm not equipped to know how to deal with what I just saw on my phone. I think that's really important. But let me say, the one thing I'm most concerned about working with kids is TikTok right now. Because it has become, the kids I see in my office, it has become the source for them for mental health issues. Really? And that is so concerning to me. So that's the one I would say for parents, as long as you can hold off. And I usually say to parents, I don't want you to be the first to let yourself have everything on technology. I don't want you to be the last because your kids are often going to sneak it or they're not going to learn how to use it responsibly. So be the next to last. What, what kind of mental health issues are coming out from TikTok? Well, 
they are learning ways to harm themselves. They're learning about eating issues. They are learning about suicide for kids who haven't really been exposed to that. Even we are seeing this is this is unbelievable, but we are seeing tick disorders develop in different regions of the country where influencers who have tick disorders are more prevalent because tick disorders are a psychogenic illness. And so if I'm sitting in the room with you and you have a tick and I'm watching you do that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to eventually develop it myself. What What about, and I'm bringing this up because I just saw a documentary on this, what about the issue of sort of people thinking they're transgender and I, had a, I know we're bringing this up again, but I've seen this a lot where it's the influence from what's going on in social media and particularly mm. things like TikTok. Mm. Is that an issue for kids who are trying to figure out gender identity and that sort of thing? You know, it's funny. I have not heard as many kids talk about that as it relates to TikTok. I have heard about it more in groups of friends. Mm. But, I mean, I think they're being exposed to everything on TikTok. And that's where, again, I think be the next to last (laughs) to let your kids get on TikTok and have a group of like-minded friends that you decide, okay, literally everyone else in their class is using it at this point. I'm going to talk it through a lot with them and we're going to let them. Well, your book is called The Worry-Free Parent, Living in Confidence So Your Kids Can Too, but also the Daystar Counseling Ministries. You've got a summer camp that's really wonderful. How do parents and kids find out more about that? Well, we are in Nashville, Tennessee, and they can go to daystarcounseling.com and read all about what we're doing. And raisingboysandgirls.com is our website for the speaking and doing all the different things, too. All right. Well, Sissy Goff, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank you for having me. You are delightful to talk with. Oh, you're delightful, too. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.